One motif that appears over and over again in the Bible is the image of the barren woman. All the matriarchs of Genesis had problems having children, Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel. And the motif appears again in the New Testament. St. John's mother had a hard time also having children. Why would this motif appear so often in Scripture, though? What literary purpose does it serve for the authors of Scripture? What's its spiritual meaning? The bottom line, the motif of the barren woman reminds us that it's God who bestows life. You're listening to The Way with Father Dustin Lyon, a podcast of the Ephesus School Network. Welcome back to The Way Podcast. I'm your host, Father Dustin. A few weeks ago, we started talking about type scenes in Scripture. You'll recall that type scenes are scenarios that are a part of the larger story. You can think of them as mini-stories within the larger story. In essence, they are conventions that the original readers of the Bible would have expected to hear for a particular setting or situation. For example, if you're into romance movies, there's a pattern that you expect when you watch them. You expect it to be a story of a love interest between a man and a woman. And at some point in the movie, you expect there to be a complication of some sort. Perhaps there's another man that the woman might also be in love with, or some obstacle that prevents the couple from being together. But By the time of the final scene, we expect the movie to end with some big gesture that finally brings them together, such as the man running through the airport to profess his love and stop the girl from moving away. Then, just before the credits roll, we expect to see the happy couple bursting out of the church just having been married. That's the standard pattern for almost every romance movie. Sorry, I spoiled it. If movies deviate from that pattern, we notice it. It catches our attention, and it tells us something about the story, the characters, and what to expect. The Bible writers had their romance movie templates as well. The one we're going to talk about today is The Barren Woman. This one is closely related to the Annunciation type scene. In fact, some stories may be using both at the same time. An example of this would be Sarah, who was both unable to bear a child and, at the same time, had a revelation that she would, in time, bear Isaac. But the two aren't always connected. For example, the most famous annunciation is probably that of the angel Gabriel to the Virgin Mary. To my knowledge, Mary was not barren, though she was a virgin, and in most Christian traditions, she remains a virgin the rest of her life. Perhaps that's a symbolic barrenness? I'll let you decide. So if my biblical knowledge doesn't fail me, I believe there are six barren women in the Old Testament. Let's recount them. Three of the four matriarchs in Genesis, Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, were barren. Then there's Hannah, the mother of the prophet Samuel, the anonymous wife of Manoah, the mother of Samson, which we looked at two weeks ago. And then there's also the great woman Ashunem, also called the Shunammite, 
who is a follower of Elisha. That's in 2 Kings chapter 4. This image of the barren woman doesn't end in the Old Testament. Most famously in the New Testament is the story of Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, or forerunner. This story is recorded in the Bible, but the tradition of the church also gives us the story of Anna's barrenness. Anna was the mother of the Virgin Mary, or the grandmother of Jesus. This story is probably well known to Orthodox Christians since it's a popular feast day in the life of the church. It's a part of the story of the Nativity of the Theotokos, and it's remembered in our iconography as well. Before discussing further, let's take a look at one of the stories. Since we briefly looked at the story of Sarah last week, and I believe most of you are probably familiar with it anyway, let's look at the next barren image that comes in Scripture, chronologically that is. And this is the story of Rebekah. Here it is. These are the descendants of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padon Aram, sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and his wife Rebekah conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is to be this way, why do I live? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. And two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The elder shall serve the younger. When her time to give birth was at hand, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy mantle, and so they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out, with his hand gripping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was sixty years old when she bore them. Genesis 25, 19-26. So, what are some of the key things you notice about this story? First is how similar it is to the story of Isaac's birth. Rebekah was not able to have children. So, what happened? Isaac prayed, and then the text simply says, The Lord granted his prayer, and his wife Rebekah conceived. In this case, it's telling what the text does not say. The text does not use one of the two standard formulas for begetting children. The first formula is that the husband knows his wife and she conceives. The other formula is to say that so-and-so is the father of so-and-so. Here in this story, Rebecca conceives because God intervenes. The husband is out of the picture. Isaac neither knows Rebecca in the biblical sense, nor does the text say that Isaac is the father of Esau and Jacob. Those things are absent in the text. This probably reminds you of Isaac's birth. The same thing happens. When Sarah conceives, Genesis 21 simply says, The Lord dealt with Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. That's verse 1 through 2. So what does this mean? If this is drawing our attention to something, what might that be? Well, before we answer that question, I want to look briefly at the story of Rachel, who is the wife of Jacob. Here it is from Genesis 30, 1 through 8. 
When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister, and she said to Jacob, Give me children, or I shall die. Jacob became very angry with Rachel and said, Am I in place of God? Who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my maid, Bilhah, go into her, that she may bear upon my knees, and that I too may have children through her. So she gave him her maid, Bilhah, as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me, and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she named him Dan. Rachel's maid, Bilhah, conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister, and I have prevailed. So she named him Naphtali. The text now talks about Leah, Jacob's other wife, and Rachel's sister. It talks about her having a lot of children. Then we get this in Genesis 30, 22-24. Then God remembered Rachel, and God heeded her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she named him Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Again, in the actual birth, the husband is absent in the text. But notice that God is present. The other thing that I really notice about this story is how similar it is to the story of Sarah, but in a different way than the story of Rebekah. Like Sarah, Rachel tries to have children through a maidservant. Sarah uses Hagar, and Rachel uses Bilhah. But, like Sarah, this wasn't how God intended for Rachel to bear children. And, as we see, eventually God steps in and Rachel conceives. This is an important point. God steps in. So, now that we briefly looked at both these stories, what's the main point? What's the text getting at? I think it's quite simple, actually. I think this sort of type scene is making a statement about life and death, and who is really in control over those things. Our world tends to operate by fear of death. This is how people in power control other people. On the one hand, there's war. Do what I want, or I'll send my troops to kill you. That's the fear of death. There's also our own modern fear of death. We need the best science and technology to try and remain youthful and healthy. And so we're afraid of death and live our lives running away from old age or even signs of old age. We fear our own death, so we turn to the pleasure of this world to numb our minds from that fact. Whereas we may have the power of death at our disposal as human beings, what we don't have is the power of life. We aren't Victor Frankenstein creating monsters from dead body parts. We do turn to science to try and help in cases of infertility, but ultimately there's only so much the doctors can do. We can't make life spring up from nothingness. But in the story of barren women, it's not what human beings do that brings life, it's what God does. And I think that's key. In the case of Sarah and Rachel, they tried to bypass God. They tried to do it their own way. 
Yes, children are born from the maidservants, but those are not the children God is talking about. Those aren't the children the story follows. God has other plans. Our human solutions aren't the blessings that God promises. We get these images of barren women as a reminder that we don't control life, even where there should be life, such as with a woman who is expected to become a mother. But where there's no life, and not even the possibility of life, God can change that. He can bestow life and make a child come forth, which, as we know, is a scriptural way of also saying that God is the one who bestows blessings upon humans. But there's a bit more. Rachel Adelman, who is an associate professor of Hebrew Bible at Boston's Hebrew College, has written about these type scenes, and here's what she has to say about the children God gives to the barren women. The motif of barrenness highlights the unique destiny of the promised son. In each of these stories, the life of the son is somehow threatened and or dedicated to God. Isaac, for example, is bound to the altar, while Jacob flees for his life from his murderous brother and wrestles with a divine being upon his return before facing Esau again. Joseph is nearly killed by his brothers and sold into slavery. Samson is dedicated as a Nazarite to God, which gives him the strength, through his uncut hair, to wage a one-man battle against the Philistines, ultimately dying a martyr's death in the Temple of Dagon. Samuel is given over as a young boy to divine service in the sanctuary of Silo. And the Shunammite's son actually dies, but is brought back to life by Elisha. These narratives suggest that God, who opens the womb, has the right to demand the life that emerges from it. So not only can God give life, but life belongs to him. In this podcast, we could say that we are asked to walk the way because God has given us life. Or to put it another way, walking the way is our response to God's love and gift of life. And when we walk the way, which means loving our neighbor, then we extend God's gift to others. We offer the possibility of life to someone when we reach out to them in their suffering. Note that this is the opposite of how the world usually operates. Instead of wielding the sword of death, when we walk the way, we are instead offering life. We're offering Christ. I think this is what it might mean to be a citizen of the kingdom. So, what are your thoughts? Until next time, God bless.